Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We are going to continue the series we started last week called Greater. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at some of the key Old Testament figures and how great they were, what made them great, why they're memorable, while we talk about them two, three, four thousand years later. And what we're really doing is not just so much giving a highlight reel of those individuals, but we're giving this idea of how Jesus plays into them, how what they did was a precursor to what Jesus came to do that was greater, because he is greater. And so today in week two, we're going to look at what I would consider, I would say, is easily one of the most revered Old Testament figures ever. One of the most famous religious figures of any religion ever in the history of the world. Today, we're going to look at Moses. Obviously, I would say to the Jewish religion, he's maybe number one, maybe Abraham's number one, but he's definitely number two as far as importance as far as uh, reverence for this person and what he did and what he accomplished. Uh, Biblically, I would say if you take the Old and the New Testament, to me, he's definitely a top five figure, maybe three or four. Uh, And and even if you're not familiar with religion, you've probably heard of Moses. You've heard of even some of the things that we will discuss this morning regarding Moses. We're going to sort of hit the highlights this morning in talking about this Old Testament figure and what made him great, and then comparing him to Jesus and see how even as amazing as Moses was, even as great as Moses was, even the great things that Moses did, Jesus is greater in these parallel ways. So we're going to look at really two thing, two events in the life of Moses that we're very familiar with and what, made, what makes him a great figure, and then a third thing, an aspect of his life that is maybe unlike any other person who ever lived besides Jesus and how Jesus ties in with this person called Moses. So three things we're going to look at today about Moses. So the first thing I want to focus on for a minute is this fact that we all know, and that is Moses was a deliverer sort of his claim to fame, you know, let my people go. That's, that's sort of how we, if you don't know anything else about Moses, you probably know that or know that line about Moses. And so to give just a quick history of where that line comes from and why it's important and what happens right after that, uh, the Hebrew race, they're not really known as Israel quite yet or the Israelites because they don't have their own nation. They don't have their own land. But they're a people group that have existed from at the time of Moses for about 700 years, starting with Abraham. But for the last 400 years, they've been in Egyptian bondage, right? They've been building pyramids and statues, and they've been building all these sarcophagi. I think that's how you say that, plural, sarcophaguses. I don't know. It's more fun to say sarcophaguses. It's harder to say. But anyway, they've been, they've been laboring for generation after generation after generation. And it seems like that's just how it's going to be for them. You know, they, they had great plans. God made a great promise, but it's just going to come up short. 
And so what really happens, almost the extinction of the entire race of the Hebrews is they become pretty numerous and the Pharaoh gets a little concerned. And so what does he do? He commands that all the young boys that are just born to be killed. He's trying to slow down the uh, population growth here of these slaves because he thinks if they get too numerous and they get into their head that they outnumber us, we're in trouble. And so he makes this decree. He declares all young boys uh, to be killed. This is not really planned, but you see this parallel in the life of Jesus as well. If you look in the birth of Jesus, the same, the same exact event, parallel, happens in the time of Jesus. But what happens is that Moses' mother has this brilliant idea. Well, I can either you know, have him basically ripped from my hands by Egyptian soldiers, or I can risk everything. So she puts them right in this basket, floats them down the Nile River, and wouldn't it just so happen under God's providential plan that the daughter of the Pharaoh happens to find this basket and the baby inside, and after discussion, after thinking about it, she decides, I'm just going to raise this orphan as my own. And so Moses, who should be dead, who is a Hebrew, uh, he is raised as one of the Pharaoh's grandsons. And that's where he lives for about the first 40 years of his life. And he's basically going to be sort of next in line to rule over the people he doesn't even know he belongs to. Except for one day he sees an Egyptian slave master being too harsh with one of the Hebrew slaves, and it really gets to him for some reason. And so he, whether accidentally or not, kills this Egyptian slave master. And in fear, in horror of what he's done, he flees Egypt. He's going to go into the the witness protection program, if you will, or really we'd call it the wilderness protection program. He goes out into the wilderness, and he tries to start a brand new life. He's going to be a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. He marries. He starts a family. Things are fine. Things are great. He does that for about 40 years. And then God, we'll talk about it in greater detail in a minute, God calls him through a miraculous event in his life, the first of a few, and says, hey, Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I'm choosing you to free them, to deliver them from slavery. And so Moses is, you know, a bit unsure about this plan, but eventually God twists his arm long enough and hard enough that he gives. And so he goes before Pharaoh and says this line, God says to you, Pharaoh, who by the way thinks he's a God, okay, Moses says, hey, my God is telling you to let his people go. And of course, Pharaoh's just not going to, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, uh, half a million free slaves uh, making everything for me. Absolutely, no problem, dude. He obviously is not going to do that. And so what happens famously is God sends 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt, and each one gets worse and worse. I mean, there's flies that swarm and block out the sun. The blood turns to water is one of the, like the Nile River turns to water. The water's undrinkable. Uh, there are plagues of locusts and plagues of uh, frogs. There's darkness that covers the whole land. None of these plagues so far have brought about the deliverance of God's people through the hand of Moses. But God has saved the harshest one for last. And this is what's key here to the deliverance through Moses. The 10th plague that God brings upon the nation of Egypt is the death of the firstborn. God says, okay, you won't give. I'll find a way for you to give to my demands. And so God has this plan and Moses tells the Hebrew people, hey, this is going to happen to you guys too unless you follow these simple instructions. So he says, hey, I want you to get a lamb, buy a lamb, 
And I want you and your family, and if you want to invite, back then they could actually invite people to their home because they didn't have a virus, you know. They could do that. It was crazy back then, 4,000 years ago, but it uh, seems like that long ago since we could do that, right? Um, but he says, okay, kill the lamb, and you're going to roast it, and you're going to make bread and make a meal. He says, now, here's the thing. Pharaoh's going to act really quickly on this, so he tells them, wear your traveling clothes Eat your meal with your shoes on. Have your bags packed by the door because as soon as this happens, we're out of here. Moses knows instinctively what's going to happen. And so he says, hey, what God's going to come through, or they, some translations call it the death angel, is going to pass through the whole nation of Egypt. And here's the key. The lamb that you've slaughtered for this meal, if you take its blood and spread it on the doorpost outside your home, when the, when the death angel comes through the nation, if he sees the blood on your doorpost, he will pass over your home. Your firstborn will not be killed. If the blood of the lamb is not on the doorpost of any home, the firstborn son of that uh, family is dead. And so what happens is Pharaoh obviously doesn't you know, hear this instruction. He doesn't heed this instruction. So his firstborn son ends up dying in the middle of the night, along with thousands of other of Egyptian homes. And so in the, it says in the middle of the night, he calls Moses to him and says, hey, dude, okay, God's, okay, fine, get out. You've brought this upon this nation. You and your people, get out. And so in the middle of the night, just as Moses had predicted, after this plague of the firstborn where thousands of boys and men die, it's not restrictive to age. It could be that you're the firstborn of your family and you're an adult male. You're dead too if the blood's not on your doorpost. So about a million or so of these Hebrews are delivered miraculously in the middle of the night because of this plague. Now, God delivered them, obviously. This was his plan. It was his providence that this came about. But he used Moses in this powerful way as a deliverer. We, we know this. The next thing that we see here, the next main thing with Moses is that Moses was also a lawgiver. Now, we may know most about this deliverance story or the Passover story. And so from that moment of, of the Passover lamb came the feast of the Passover, right? The Jews still celebrate that to this day to commemorate the deliverance of God from Egyptian bondage. But then after they leave, what happens next is really the most essential thing to the Hebrew and what would become the Israeli, the Jewish people, and that is their law. Their law is what binds them together. It is the glue of their civilization. Even before they have land that they claim as their own, and even in the times where most of their history they haven't had their own land to claim as their own, they had the law to hold them together, to give them identity. And I want to quickly go over, there's, there's three levels or parts to the Mosaic law or the law of Moses here that will come in handy in a little bit. So I'm going to cover that very quickly. There's the moral law, the section of moral law. There's a section called the civil law. And then there's a third section that is called uh, the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law is basically the Ten Commandments. Those, those the set in stone, literally, okay? Those rules, the moral law is there. That's sort of the first set or category. Then there's the civil law, which if you read Leviticus, there's a lot of civil and ceremonial law in Leviticus. So typically, we have a hard time reading through that because we don't really relate to what those laws mean. And that'll come in handy again in a few minutes. So the civil law is basically how we would have our laws in our country. These are the laws that help, to, help us to coexist with one another. So, for instance, a law, if, you know, if, you accident, if one of your bulls accidentally kills one of your neighbor's bulls, 
you have to give them your bull, right? Or, you, they, or they get to kill yours. Those types of everyday, here's how we survive with each other. Here's how I act toward my neighbor. Here's how we do life together, the civil law. Then there's the ceremonial law, and that is all about how we worship God or how the, the Jewish people worshiped God. And this is where we get into the really bloody, gory part of the law, where every sin must be atoned for, okay? So whenever you sin against God, he requires a sacrifice to cover over that sin. So in a way, the Passover is the first of many what would become these ceremonial laws. It required a blood sacrifice to cover them. In the same way, they have what we know as the sacrificial system, where certain laws require certain sacrifices. Blood is required to cover those sins. And it seems really odd and really weird, but that is how these people worshipped God is in this way. This is how they confessed their sin. This is how God covered their sin. So again, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law is all a part of the Mosaic law. Now, here's an important factor, and then we'll move on. Important thing to note, with the law of Moses, there is a faith component to the law of Moses, but it is by and large all about outward obedience to this law. That's, that's mainly what this structure is for, how we do life together, how we worship God together. It's, it's more about outward worship, emphasis on outward appearances, and, and even the sacrificial system of slaughtering animals and making grain offerings and all that sort of thing. It's outward expression. So there are physical offerings. Some of the laws are physical cleanliness laws, and they can get kind of weird, and that's like, why would God put that in there? It's part of how they worshiped. It's about an outward focus. There are physical rituals that they would have to abide by. It's, it's more of an outward uh, law. The law was important. It set Israel apart from other people groups. It gave them national and religious distinctives. And again, the way that God chose to give them this distinctive nature was through this law that is from God. Again, the deliverance is from God, but he used Moses to bring about the deliverance. The law is God's law, but it's called the law of Moses because God spoke through Moses and to Moses to bring about this law, okay? But here's the third thing about Moses that is incredibly fascinating and really what sets him apart, I think, from most, if not any other person who's ever lived. And that is the fact that God appeared to Moses. And not just once, which would be enough. We're going to talk about, very quickly, three distinct moments in Moses' life where God appeared to him in a nearly physical way, in a very supernatural way that would set him apart from all other people. So the first one we've already alluded to a bit is in Exodus 3, and that's where Moses, remember he's killed this Egyptian uh, slave driver. He's, he's, you know, out in the wilderness tending to sheep now. He's in his 70s, near 80 years old at this point, and as he's looking on the side of this mountain here, he, he knows this land forward and backward. He sees something odd, and he looks around, and he sees this bush, right, that is burning but not consumed by the fire. It's just continually on fire, and he's kind of obviously intrigued by that. And that is just the beginning, right? Because then he hears a voice talk to him from this bush. God communicates audibly, verbally, to this man through this bush. I don't know what he was smoking when this happened, uh, or, you know, 
Uh, I don't know if the, you know, the smoke from the fire got to him or something. No, but, but God spoke to him through here and commissioned him to be the deliverer of his people. And that's where this whole thing starts. And again, Moses is a bit reluctant. He actually argues with God a little bit. No, no, you must be talking to a different Moses, not me. I'm not cut out for this. I'm not qualified for this. I can't do this. And God says, I didn't ask you if you were qualified to do this or if you could do this. I'm just telling you, you are going to do this. Anybody can relate to that in your life? God doesn't ask you if you can or you want to or you have the time. To, he's not asking, right? He's not asking those. He's just telling you, I'm, you're going to do this. And, and that's what we, you know, hopefully in the way of Moses should follow that directive. So that's the first thing. And then we get through the deliverance of Moses. We get through all of this. And then we skip to Exodus 33. And it tells us an interesting sort of story in this uh, account in the life of Moses. Right after they're delivered, they're kind of at the bottom of this mountain, the same mountain where God spoke through the burning bush, okay? They're kind of camped here, waiting on instructions for going forward here. And it says that there was this tent that Moses would have. It was called the tent of meeting. Remember that, Kim? Tent of meeting? Long time ago, we were in college. We had this idea, if we ever start a church, we're going to call it the tent of meeting. Thankfully, we didn't do that because that's a pretty terrible name. Uh, no offense, if you're watching and you go to Tent of Meeting Church, I'm sure it's awesome. The name is terrible. Anyway, so here's what happens. He sets up this tent for this one purpose. Moses goes into this tent of meeting to meet with God. Exodus 33 tells us he would set up this tent far away from the rest of the camp, and all the people, they're going to get out of their tents, and they're going to look and see what's going on at the tent of meeting. And so the reason they're so uh, interested in what's going on is because it says Moses would go into this tent, and it says that God would come down in the form of a cloud to the entrance of the tent and speak with Moses face to face as a friend would speak with a friend. That's the kind of relationship that Moses has with God, something that separates him from almost anybody else who's ever lived. This is a normal occurrence, not just a one-time thing like Exodus 3 and even the next one that we'll talk about. This is a regular, this happens all the time. God comes down in the form of a cloud to the entrance of this tent and speaks with Moses like a friend. It's amazing. And then there's one more. The very next chapter, you'd think, oh, that'd be enough. But in Exodus 34, Moses is having a faith crisis. You ever been there before? He's having a moment of extreme weakness and doubt because he knows that they're about to embark on a journey here, and he's afraid that God's not going to go with them even though God said he is going to. And he's like, I, I'm not sure, God. You know, I, I've been disappointed before by people, and I've been let down by people, and I, this is a tricky thing, and no one's ever done this before, and are you sure? And, and, and Abraham, Moses says, well, I'm not, if you're not going to go with us, if I don't have an assurance that you're going to go with us, then I'm not going to go. And so God's like, what, what do you need from me besides my word that I'm going to go? And so Moses makes this amazing request in Exodus 34. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, well, that's a problem because that would kill you. So sometimes we don't really want what we think we want. Okay, we need to, you know, refresh that request. Because God says, well, no one can see God's face and live. So he's like, even the thing in the tent, you want more than that. You can't handle. That's the most you can handle. And so God says, okay, I'll do, you, I'll do you one favor here. He says, go up to this part of the mountain. You know it really well. You've been there before. 
and wait for me. And what I'll do is I'm going to cover you with my hand, even though God's a spirit. He doesn't have a hand, but he uses that language. He says, I'm going to cover you with my hand as I pass by so you don't die, so your face doesn't melt off like the end of Indiana Jones, okay? Because that's what would happen. I'm going to pass, cover you with my hand as I pass by, and I'll let you sort of see the back end of my glory here is what he promises him. And so we, if, you, if you're familiar with this story, you know what happens, that when God passes by and Moses sees just part of God's glory, the part that he can physically stand, the scripture says his face is glowing like the sun. I mean, like seeing a glimpse of God's glory, the most he can handle literally makes his face to radiate with God's glory. And he comes down from the mountain and the people can't even look at him because it's so bright. He has to wear a veil over his face while the glory sort of fades from this experience. This is an amazing person to have had these encounters with God, these appearances with God, multiple times in multiple ways to where literally, physically, uh, his face begins to glow with the glory of God. So how in the world is Jesus greater than this guy? How, How in the world can he top what Moses did and what he experienced and what God used him to do? But we're going to go back like we did last week through these same three ideas and see how these stories and accounts from Moses parallel to Jesus, and Jesus one-ups him every time. So we saw at the top that Moses is known as a great deliverer. Moses was a deliverer. But Jesus is greater because he is a greater deliverer. Jesus brings a different type of freedom than even the great Moses brought an even greater freedom than Moses was able to bring. Let's read this, John 8, 31 through 36. Uh, he's in, a, in the teaching at a crowd to a crowd here, and it says this, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, the crowd said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Moses was a great deliverer, a mighty deliverer. But Jesus is greater. Because Jesus offers true freedom, lasting freedom, because the freedom he offers is spiritual freedom. He says, you are a slave to sin. So we'll talk about that in just a second, but I, I want to make sure we bring this out. Sin is not just something that we do. It is, some, it is someone that we serve. Okay, when you get that. Sin is not just, oh, uh, yeah, I messed up. No, no, it's like we're under bondage to sin before we accept Christ. We are not our own. We think we're free before Christ. Sometimes we, people refuse to put faith in Christ. Well, I don't need rules. I don't want to be, you know, him to cramp my style. It's like you're already a slave to sin that's going to kill you. Jesus says if you sin, you're a slave to sin. It's not just what we do. It's who we are in bondage to or what we are in bondage to. But then Romans 6 echoes the same idea that Jesus said here, and I want to read this. Romans 6, 14 through 18, Paul says, sin, once we receive 
once we have faith in Christ, sin is no longer your master, for you no, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can keep, go on sinning? Paul says, of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. And then he says this, Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. This is the type of deliverance Moses could never offer. This is the type of deliverance Moses was incapable of offering. But that's the whole point of Jesus. That's the whole point of the mission of Jesus was to do what Moses could not do. This great leader, this great deliverer, this mighty man, Jesus came to be greater. And even with this idea of we talked about the sacrificial system, we'll talk about again in a second but it started with this passover lamb right the curse of death was going to come through the land of egypt unless the blood of the lamb was was put on the doorpost of that home if they did that then their firstborn was safe they were safe god would pass over them that was how this physical deliverance came about for the hebrew people but so then how does our spiritual deliverance come about I would argue in the same exact way. Here's what I mean by that. John 1, 29. This is the Apostle John, the disciple John writing. He's talking about John the Baptist here, which we'll talk more about him a little bit next week. Uh, says this, The next day John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John saw in his cousin Jesus, he foresaw what Jesus would do. He saw the imagery. He foresaw the sacrifice, the mission of Jesus. Because the Passover lamb, the blood was required for God to pass over. In the sacrificial system of worship in the Old Testament, blood was required to cover sin. In the same way, yet in a greater way, the blood of a different lamb is required for cleansing of sin, and it's the blood of Jesus. John saw that from the very beginning. He is the Lamb of God. He will be sacrificed. Why? To take away the sin of the world. So just like the Passover lamb causes death to pass over the Hebrew people, the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, causes God to pass over and cleanse our sin. And it's not just that this is one thing that John saw or one description that is like, oh, that's, that's cute, that's neat, that's, that's cool. This is how Jesus is seen in the future, in eternity future. Here's what Revelation 5, this is again John writing here. Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12. John in this vision says this, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice how do they describe Jesus in heaven worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing this is what makes Jesus a greater deliverer 
Not that God used a lamb to forgive sin, but that Jesus was the lamb and is the lamb that forgives all sin for all time. Jesus is a greater deliverer. The second thing, again, we saw about Moses is that he was a lawgiver, and the law is amazing. The law is great. The law has merit and value, but Jesus is not the lawgiver, but he is the law fulfiller. He makes this clear in Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's important that Jesus make this statement, because if Jesus even if he says, I've come to get rid of the law, he's lost his audience immediately. If he even gives off the intent of abolishing the law, he's lost his audience. That's not his mission. In fact, Jesus believed in the law. Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus observed the law. But more important than that is he fulfilled the law. So what Jesus is saying in this statement and other statements that he makes is that whole, this whole system that we observe, the, uh, this, the, the part of the law that we observe to worship God, the sacrificial system, it's all pointing to me. It's not now going to need to be a goat or a bull or a ram or a lamb because that I've come to fulfill that requirement of the law. Again, let's go through the three parts of the law very quickly and see how this is true. And this is what sometimes is tricky. When we go from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship, this is sometimes a hard part for Christians. Okay, well, what part of the Old Testament do we observe? What part do we not? And so we're going to look at that for just a second here. So we have, again, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments, okay, basically is what that boils down to. Jesus in his life and teaching and ministry affirms the moral law. He continues the moral law. Really, he even deepens the moral law. Because there are certain things that he'll say, you know, it says, you shall not uh, commit adultery. But Jesus, he, but Jesus says, but I tell you that even if you look upon someone and lust after them, you've broken that commandment already in your heart. So you would think, okay, we're going to go from 600 rules and we're going to go down to 10. This is going to be easy breezy. And Jesus says, wrong. He, he, he affirms and continues the moral law, but he even deepens this moral law. So we're not, we're not getting rid of that, okay? Jesus affirms that and continues that. What about the civil law? Again, the laws of day-to-day life. How do we coexist? Well, Jesus fulfills them because what we do now as followers of this sort of branch religion from Judaism, the question again of civil laws, how do we coexist day-to-day? Jesus fulfills the civil law in that how, how do Christians, in our religious worldview, in our day-to-day interaction, how do we coexist? Well, we do it in and through the love of Jesus. We do it in faith in Christ and by faith through Christ. That's how this civil law is, is fulfilled in Jesus. So this, when you read civil law in the, in the Old Testament, you're like, well, I don't own a bull that's going to get gored by my neighbor's bull, so that law doesn't mean much to me. Well, no, but the heart behind it, Jesus still affirms. The civil law is, is, is fulfilled in Christ as we coexist through him. That's how that sort of changes on its head. And if I had more time, I'd get deeper into that, but I don't. So we'll cover that maybe a different time. 
Then again, we get into the ceremonial law. This is how we worship God. The sacrificial system, the blood that is required. Jesus completes this, obviously. He fulfills this because how we worship God is now through Jesus. His spiritual deliverance that we just talked about, him being the lamb, fulfills the law. That's how this whole thing now works. It meets the requirement of the sacrifice needed, and our, now our worship is through faith in Christ. That's why in Romans 12, I don't have it on the screen, but I thought of it a couple days ago. That's why Romans 12 kind of sums this up. Romans 12 says that we are to give our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. And then he says, this is our spiritual act of worship. Again, the ceremonial law is all about worship. So Jesus fulfills this law by being the sacrifice that now we place our faith in. And 1 Peter writes in his first letter that this is a once and for all sacrifice. We don't have to go back to the temple all the time, every week, every month, every time we sin. We don't have to worry about that because Christ did it and it covers all sin from that moment on. The full and final sacrifice. This is our true worship as we give ourselves to him. I want to read one more scripture about this because I love the way that Paul explains this in Galatians 3 about how Jesus is the law fulfiller. He says this, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, so the Old Testament, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. And then he says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So the way I I picture this in my mind is, it's like when you're a a small, a young child, and your parents are going to go out. They're going to have to hire a babysitter to come watch you while they're gone. Someone that's not a part of the family necessarily. It's someone that they're going to bring in to watch you at the house while they're gone. So that's the Old Testament law. It kind of kept us in place, kept us together, gave us a frame of reference for how we live, how we coexist, how we worship God. But now that Jesus has come, it's like, okay, now the older sibling can just stay at home and watch the younger siblings while mom and dad are out. That's what Jesus, that's who he is. He's our older brother. So when he comes now, he's like, okay, okay, law, I got this. You know, I'm, I'm here now. All is well. I can watch the little kids while, while dad's away and we'll be just fine. That's exactly what Paul is describing here. The Old Testament law was that babysitter that kind of kept us in check, kept us all there. And then when big brother, you know, when he came, he's like, I, I can take care of this. I can take care of this now. So Jesus, again, let me stress this. Jesus never says, I'm getting rid of the law. He never says, we don't need the law. He never says, oh, the law is terrible, the law is awful. Paul echoes that as well. What he's saying instead, which makes him greater, is that I am the law. I fulfill the law, the means of grace given in in a fuller way through Jesus. The last thing we'll talk about here for just a minute is, this again, this idea that God appeared to Moses in at least three different distinct ways, powerful ways on their own. It's amazing. That's what makes Moses great that God appeared to him. But what makes Jesus greater is that God appeared through Jesus. God appeared to Moses, but God appeared through Jesus. Moses saw glimpses of God's glory, but Jesus is 
God's glory. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Remember in Exodus 34 when Moses says, God, show me your glory. God passes by and Moses' face is literally radiating, glowing with God's glory. Listen to this, Hebrews 1, 3. The Son, that's Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. So even with Moses, there was, the, there was distance with God. There had to be. God even said, hey, I'd love to, but I don't want to kill you. So there's only so much interaction we can have. There's only so cl- there's, it's only, there's got to be some distance here. But Jesus came to make God intimately close. And that's what we see here in Matthew 1. We're getting close to the holiday season, so this verse is right up our alley, okay? Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All of this, so these are the events of the birth of Jesus. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Again, even with someone as great as Moses, there was distance between God and Moses. There had to be. But Jesus came to bring us into a close, intimate, personal relationship with God, something that Moses could not do. The way that I describe this in sort of everyday terms, it's like this. There's a difference between I have a friend who's friends with Patrick Mahomes and I am friends with Patrick Mahomes. Okay, those are different statements. <laughs> See that? I have a friend who is friends with Patrick Mahomes. That's cool. I might get an autographed football, and I might have shook his hand one time or whatever, but there's still distance there. There's a barrier there, okay? I don't have an intimate relationship. That's different than I am friends with Pat. I get to call him Pat. Even though his mom says don't, I, we have that kind of friendship. I can call him Pat. I'm not going to tell his mom when I go over for Thanksgiving, you know, to his house because I'm his friend. I'm not. This is, this is not a real scenario, people, okay? I don't have his number. I don't, I've never met him. But there's a difference there. That's the difference between Moses and Jesus. Mo, with Moses, there's, a, there's separation, several layers, several levels, several steps of separation. But with Jesus, there's no separation. There's no separation. Jesus gives us access to God that before was impossible, even through Moses, even for Moses. Hebrews 4.16, again, I don't have it on the slide, but Hebrews 4.16 says that through Jesus, because of Jesus, we can approach God's throne boldly. We have access with confidence to God's throne to obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. That statement is not possible without Jesus. We don't have boldness to approach God's throne. Moses couldn't even do that. But we have access to God that even Moses didn't have because Jesus came to bridge that relational gap. Jesus gives us access to God that was impossible, and Jesus gives us a a clearer view of God than ever before. He is like spiritual Windex. You know, you know, he's getting it all. It was all fogged over. It was all, you know, messy fingerprints and smudges. We could see God, but not great. Jesus came and wiped it, and it is like sparkling clean. We can see him clearly and fully because of what Jesus did. Because even as great as Moses was, God appeared to him 
But Jesus is greater even than Moses because God appeared through Jesus and gives us that access and that intimacy and that relationship with God that beforehand was impossible. So Moses' deliverance was great. Moses' law was great. Moses' relationship to God was great. I mean, epically great. But Jesus' deliverance is greater. Jesus' fulfillment of the law is greater. His relationship to God was greater because he was God, and so therefore the relationship that we can have with God is now greater even than what Moses had because Jesus is greater. 